0: B.A. Robertson's father died 12 weeks before his own son was born. And during those 12 weeks, he wrote the song, The Living Years, which became a number one hit around the world for Mike and the Mechanics. Robertson was nominated for a Grammy Award for Song of the Year for it in, in 1990. And here's some of the lyrics to that song. Every generation blames the one before, and all of their frustrations come beating on your door. I know that I'm a prisoner to all my father held so dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. Say it loud, say it clear. You can listen as well as you hear. It's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye. So we open up a quarrel between the present and the past. We only sacrifice the future. It's the bitterness that lasts. I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. I think I caught his spirit later that same year. I'm sure I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. This song resonated in the hearts of people around the world. Because rare is the person I believe who doesn't face frustration in relationships. Think of yourself right now. How much time, how much energy do you spend on relationships in your life with your parents, with your siblings, friends, roommates, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? The word of the Lord this morning will help us. I think it will help ease the strain of some of those relationships if we'll listen to the truth of it and do what God tells us to do think it'll win back time that we needlessly waste on relationships in our lives, relationships between us and others, and between us and God. That's what I want to talk about as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. So if you have your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together, the word of the living God, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 8, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who inspired it. We thank you, Lord, that it is truth. And we pray now that the same Spirit who inspired the writing of this word would apply its truth to our lives. For that we would be more the people that you call us to be. That we would be brave and bold enough to do the things that you call us to do. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. As we return once again this week to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to talk once again this week about the kingdom of heaven. Over the course of the last few weeks, we've seen that as Jesus sent out his disciples for the very first time to do ministry on their own without him being physically present with them, he gave them very specific instructions about what they were to say, and he told his disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven is near. Last week, we talked about just how important Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not just as a topic, but as a reality for our lives. Matthew records the first spoken words of John the Baptist as being these, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew records the first spoken words of Jesus when he began his public preaching ministry as, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. As we heard last week, one commentator said that in Matthew and Mark and Luke, there is no more important topic that Jesus addresses than the topic of the kingdom of heaven. Why is it so important? Why does Jesus and John and the disciples give so much attention to the kingdom of heaven? To answer that, we have to look at the heart of God. Because God knows what his kingdom is like. God knows the, the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the splendor of it. God dwells in the magnificent light of it. Jesus knows about the kingdom. Jesus has lived in that kingdom. It's that kingdom that he left in order to come to earth and tell us about that kingdom. And so when Jesus tells the stories in scripture, and when he begins, the kingdom of heaven is like dot, 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 Jesus is speaking from firsthand experience. And when he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, treasure hidden in a field, When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus is communicating the glory and the splendor of the kingdom. If we only could get a glimpse of it, you and I would trade everything, sell everything we had just so we could be part of this kingdom. And remember, as we saw last week, the kingdom of heaven isn't just something for the future, pie in the sky, by and by. No, the reality of the kingdom of heaven is present with us right now and the way we live our lives. We'll see it in its fullness one day when the Lord returns, but it's both now and it's not yet. And so it's the heart of God the Father It's the heart of God the Son, it's the heart of God the Holy Spirit to share this wonderful kingdom with us. Why Jesus talks about it so much. God wants to share it with us, and so Jesus in one of his stories puts on the lips of the master of the particular parable, well done, good and faithful servant, enter, come share the happiness of your master. God wants to share his kingdom with us. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, that we should keep giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You get it? God wants to share his kingdom with us. Jesus talks about the kingdom so much, so it'll be a longing of our heart to be part of that kingdom. But listen, because God is God, And because Jesus is king of the kingdom, he gets to tell us how we enter it, how to become part of it, what we have to do to share it. And so he's perfectly justified to stand at the gate and allow in only those who will do what is required to be part of his kingdom. We don't deny that right to anyone. We don't. I was in Vienna visiting friends a few months after the nuclear plant in Chernobyl exploded. Anybody here old enough to remember that? It was 1986. And the nuclear fallout from that explosion was believed to be very widespread over much of Europe. And so people were nervous about that nuclear fallout. My friends required whoever came to visit them to take their shoes off at the door. Now, if you didn't want to go barefoot, if you didn't want to just wear your socks, they provided slippers for you to put on. They didn't want people tracking nuclear fallout into their home where they were raising three very small children. Well, in the five weeks I was there, not one person ever came to visit and said, I refuse to take off my shoes. Step aside. I'm coming in anyway. I will track nuclear fallout all over your carpet if I want to. Nobody ever said that. Everyone who came to the door abided by the requirement of the owner of the home. And so the Lord gets to say this because he's the Lord. This is my kingdom. This is my heaven. This is my home. He gets to say, this is what you must do if you're going to enter. And what everyone, everyone must do before they enter his kingdom is repent. Repent says John the Baptist, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, says Jesus, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when Mark tells this same story of the disciples going out, he said that they went out and preached that people should what? Repent. And so the disciples say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is God's requirement. This is God's requirement for being part of his kingdom, for entering it, for living in it. He gets to say, mine is a home. Mine is a kingdom of beauty and splendor, of light and love, of joy and peace. Everything here is beautiful and you cannot track your toxic sin all over it. And so we must leave sin at the door. Walk away from it. Turn and walk toward God. That is what repentance is in our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 87, asks, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, and that's all of us, out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of, and endeavor after new obedience. So repentance means, at its core, to to change your mind. Repentance means to turn around and to go in a new direction. Repentance involves the the whole person. All of you. All of me. Not just part of it. It doesn't just mean to change the way we think. It means to change the way we act as well. That's why John the Baptist said to the religious leaders who had come to hear him preach, He said, produce fruit, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. They claim to have faith. They claim to believe. They claim to be religious. But to make such claims, to believe and to speak and teach the truth is not enough. You've got to live the truth as well. And that's why saying, sorry, doesn't really cut it. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't wreck someone's life and say, oh, sorry about that. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And because the word repentance also means to feel remorse, it means to change the way you feel. There is remorse. There is regret for past mistakes, for past ways of living. When you repent, your whole life must change. And so in a very real sense, the call to repentance is also a call to discipleship to living as a follower of Christ. Faith and discipleship and repentance, they they all go together. Now here's my struggle with repentance. And maybe this is your struggle as well. And I'm not talking about here just repentance to enter into the kingdom of God. I'm talking about the repentance of living in the kingdom. Whenever a person repents, you and I, we go in a new direction. And that always, always involves making a judgment on the old way of thinking, the old way of acting, the old way of feeling. And so repentance demands that we say, I was wrong. Anybody here ever struggle with saying the words, I was wrong? Get your hands up in the air. My children are about to choke right now. (laughs) My dad said that? Yeah. Yeah. I was wrong. I was wrong in the way I was thinking. The choices I was making in the way I live my life, they were wrong. I was not feeling the right way about this. Now, see, we prefer to let our relationships grow cold. We prefer to let our relationships ice over our relationship with God, our relationship with others for hours, for days, for weeks, for months, for years, because we do not want to say, I was wrong. I was wrong in what I thought. I was wrong in what I said. I was wrong in what I did. Only repentance brings the fall. And we'll never repent until we learn to say, I was wrong about that. And I believe that's why widespread repentance, it doesn't happen. Because we put our efforts, we put so much of our efforts into making ourselves okay. We put so much effort into justify, to, to, to justify our choices. And the mental gymnastics that you and I have to do in order to do that are exhausting. Because we know the truth and yet we want to live the way we want to live, which we know is in contradiction with this truth that we believe. And in order to do that, we have to work and work and strain and strain to make the square peg of what we want fit into the round hole of God's truth. And it's exhausting. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to repent. Before God, we don't want to repent. Before others, we don't want to say, I'm wrong. If the requirements of entering into God's kingdom... And living in God's kingdom requires something of us that we don't want to give. Then we look for truth outside of what God's word requires of us. So we read books or we listen to people who make us make us okay. Who affirm who we are or or what we're doing or or how we're living. Because we don't want to make judgments on our lives. That's not repentance. Repentance. Repentance is naming it. Repentance is turning our backs on it and trusting God to help us keep going in the right direction through struggle, through difficulty, through pain, through messing up again and again and again. But in the midst of that struggle, for those who repent, there is the peace, the peace of knowing you are right with God. You and I, We give away peace, real peace, when we try to make peace with our sin, to make it okay. All we'll end up with is a holographic peace. And when we really need that peace in our lives, when we really need to to reach out and grab that peace in our lives, without repentance, we'll only be putting our arms around and embracing air. There is no peace apart from being right with God. The book, the talk show host, the psychologist, the psychiatrist may tell you, you're okay, you're okay. But if God doesn't tell you you're okay, guess what? You're not okay. But the flip side is also true as well. If God says you're okay, then guess what? What? You're okay, okay, if God says so. And God tells everyone, everyone, who will repent of their sins, everyone who will turn their back on sin and turn to faith in Christ, God says, you're okay. That's what he says. And that's why the message of repentance is a message of joy because the possibility of repentance even exists for us. See, we're tricked. We're tricked into believing that repentance is a bad thing. got to give this up. I've got to give that up. We think of it negatively when actually it's a positive word because repentance focuses on what we're gaining. When we turn our back on sin, what are we gaining? We're gaining God, a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. What could you possibly give up? What could you give up in your life that could compare to Him? What could be better? I promise you this. You'll never lose anything more valuable than you will gain in Christ. You will never lose anything more valuable than you will gain in Christ. Do you believe that? Because the prodigal son knew that it was possible for him to go back to his father, he did. He turned his back on the terrible life that he had been living. He turned his back on the pig slop that he had been eating. And he turned around and he headed to his father's home. And what did he receive from the father? A banquet, a celebration. In fact, the father said to the older son who wouldn't come in and join the party, the father said, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So you and I, we are wrong to believe that repentance and turning back to the father is anything but a reason for joy in our lives. And we are wrong to believe that anything we turn our backs on is in any way better than the banquet and the celebration that the Lord has for his repentant, home-heading people. When the shepherd found the lost sheep, he called all his friends together. And he says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost sheep. And Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And why should we limit the repentance that Jesus is talking about here to a one time act when we turn in faith to Christ? How it must please our Father in heaven every time He sees one of His children who are filled with His Spirit making right choices, repenting, turning away from sin, and turning toward Him. And the joy and the satisfaction that he offers, that brings joy to the heart of the Father because he's made repentance possible for you and for me. It's a daily act, a daily turning from sin, a daily turning from what we place more value on than than we place on Christ. Not just heaven one day, but, but right now. It's daily saying, Lord, I was wrong to say this, to do this right now. In the living years, we repent. We repent chasing after pleasure, having a good time, trying to find fulfillment and joy in something other than you. You know, I love to preach the grace of God, display the person of Christ. I, I love it. I love it. You can't talk about grace too much. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that you and I cannot boast. A former member said my sermons made him want to sin more because I talked about grace so much. Well, why well, your Craig sermons, I just want to sin more because all he talks about is grace. I'm not going to stop talking about grace. I'm not. But you know what? Grace and repentance are not mutually exclusive. Grace and repentance don't fight with one another. Repentance is how we experience the grace of God. Repentance is what God requires if we are ever to experience His grace. And so because of that, in addition to to loving and teaching and preaching the grace of God, we've got to be bold with ourselves. And we've got to be bold with our others. And we've got to say, you must repent. This is not an option. It's vital. It's of eternal significance. We must repent to enter the kingdom. We must repent to live in the kingdom. We must not keep the Lord at a distance because we refuse to repent and we must not allow our relationship with him to grow cool or ice over because we don't want to come into his presence and just say, I was wrong. I repent. I turn my whole life to you. And we must not miss out on the abundant life that we can experience when everything is right between us and God. And you know that in your life right now, if you're not Repenting. And you're not right with God. Your life is a flurry of activity and frustration and anger. It is. Repentance can end all of that. You know, it's interesting that Jesus tells his disciples here He says, Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles, basically everyone who is not a Jew. Don't go to the Samaritans, people who are kind of half Jew and, and half not Jew. Jesus says, no, go only to my people, the lost sheep of Israel, people who I have called to be my own, people I have blessed by revealing myself and my truth to them. Go to those people and tell those people to repent. And I've been mulling over this, thinking, why? Jesus, did the disciples not just get to go to everybody? And I don't know for certain, but this did occur to me If God's people don't get it right, if you and I don't get it right, the religious ones, how's anyone else going to get it right? If those who don't yet know God don't see us living lives of repentance, why should they? If our lives mirror their lives, what difference does it make to have a relationship with Christ? If we're chasing after the same goals, the same pleasures, the same entertainments, as they are, why should they turn their backs on what we won't turn our backs on? If we won't make judgments about our lives, why should they make judgments on theirs? Why should they not just embrace what our culture says, which is, do whatever's right for you. It's okay. If they look inside the church and see squabbling and splits and people who don't get along, then what do we have to say to them about healthy relationships and human dignity and the value of the life of others? We must begin with repentance of the church. Repentance among God's people. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of heaven because God's people had forgotten who they were. They'd forgotten how they were supposed to live. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven because God's people had forgotten who they were and how they were supposed to live. They were like lost sheep. And Jesus came to find them, to turn them back, to put them on the right path, to be their shepherd to be their Savior, to be the fulfillment of all that God had promised to people who had forgotten who they were supposed to be. And it's nothing but pride in you and me this morning to believe that we are that much different from the people that Jesus came to, to believe somehow that our faith, to believe that our memories are impenetrable or unfailing. The testimony of Scripture should give us all and the testimony of Scripture is that it does not take God's people very long to forget God. Before Moses died, the man who had so faithfully led God's people, he gathered them together before they went into the province land. He was not going to go with them. And he reminded them of their history as God's people. And he said they sacrificed, these are God's people, to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. After Moses died, Joshua led God's people into the land that God promised them. And God spoke through Joshua. He said, tell the people, you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. But the people didn't obey They did make covenants. They did not break down the altars of the idols. And the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But after the whole generation died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. They worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. Psalm 106 recounts the history of God's people. It says there they forgot God their Savior who had done great things. Jeremiah chapter 50. God says, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They have wandered over mountain and hill and forgot. Forgot their own resting place. Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the desert, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and they forgot me. How easy it is for us to forget when we have all we think we need, when we're comfortable, when life is okay nothing looming, no impending threat, we're satisfied. And when we're satisfied, it's so easy to forget God, to forget who we are, to forget how we are supposed to live our lives. But we can't forget. We can't forget when we are looking at God, when we are turned toward Him, away from sin, turned to face Him. We can't forget him. And so the call to you and to me right now is is to repent. Just as John and Jesus and the disciples called people to repent, not just once, but daily, turning from sin and turning toward Christ, it's for your own good. You'll never regret keeping yourself turned toward God, facing Him always. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. You want refreshment in your life? Repent. And not just for ourselves, but for a world who needs Jesus, who needs to see Jesus in us, to see that he's real, to see that he makes a difference. Let us, you and me, let us begin with repentance. Let's pray together. This morning we have moved the prayer of confession to this point in the service because we all need a few moments to let the Spirit of God search our hearts, reveal to us the things for which we need to repent, Some minor things, some very serious things, things that are completely inconsistent with one who calls himself a believer in Christ. And so the next few moments, we will just come quietly before the Lord, repenting of our sin and receiving from the Lord that promised refreshment that comes when we will say, I was wrong, Lord, I am sorry. Show me ways to make it right. Let's pray silently. Father, this is not time enough to repent of all that we need to repent of, but Lord, maybe it's time enough for the fall to begin for Your Spirit to start to melt hearts. Lord, if there are others here who have a heart like mine, we know how stubborn we can be. We can sit and hear about repentance and stand and preach about repentance knowing all the while, Lord, that there are Things in our lives that we just are not willing to give up. Lord, I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts to hear your truth. To trust you. To believe, Lord, that repentance is a good thing. It's a thing of joy. Something that brings relief from the strain and dysfunction of relationships in our lives with others but most importantly in our relationship with you so we don't have to run from you but when we repent we get to rest in you enjoy your peace so father make us repentant people for our good but ultimately for your glory that you can display in us and through us the power of your spirit in and among people who are willing to repent to come out of the bondage of sin and, and to walk and the light and the love of your kingdom. Keep us always repentant people, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.